Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray, dearest Lord, that you would give Graham the right words to speak, that you would open up our ears to hear, that you'd open up our minds to understand and our hearts to be changed from this study of your word. And we lift up these prayers in the holy and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Before I left for Russia, which hasn't been in the news here recently, um, this was one of my favorite things that this church does. So it's a delight to be with you here this morning. Paul told me I could spend the whole time and just talk about Russia if I wanted to, but I decided that I prepared for judges and we're in judges, so we're going to stay in judges. Um, but just to uh, tell you a little bit about Russia, um, of course, these last few days have been completely heartbreaking. Um, some sleepless nights. You can be praying at the end if you want to. You can come up and ask me questions. We're trying to get uh, money into the country. I've got a very brave missionary who is about to cross down to Kazakhstan and try to bring cash back in so we can pay our church planters in a few different cities in Russia. So be praying for us and be pray for, pray for Ukraine as well. Uh, my boss is there. His team is there uh, in Lviv. Um, so you can just lift the whole thing up in prayers. This morning, I want to dive into Judges. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 8. And if you guys remember, the story of Judges is a story of God's continued grace and mercy as he draws these people that have forgotten who he is and they worship the Baals and they look at the culture and they start behaving like the culture. And then God sends a rescuer after they call out for him. And the rescuer comes. It's usually a judge. And a judge is a warrior. A spirit-filled warrior who comes and, you know, fights on God's behalf and rescues the people. And there's peace in the land for a period of time. And the cycle goes on because after the judge dies, the people fall back into sin. And the cycle continues. The phrase that runs through judges is this idea of kingless is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I know last week Paul was talking about Gideon and this mighty victory that Gideon had and with the 300 men. And today we're going to continue to look at Gideon's entire judgeship and bring Gideon's judgeship to a close. So the end of chapter 7 ends with Gideon and the Lord getting all the glory or the fame as the scriptures call it. Fame because he does this mighty thing. No one can get the glory because there's only 300 men against about 120,000. And so that's the backdrop of today's chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 22, I think, through the end of the chapter. But let me just bring you in what happens in between there. What happens in Judges chapter 8. So after Gideon wins this first great battle against the Midianites, he continues to pursue them. He continues to push them out of the land. And it's hard to tell in scripture sometimes because you might just have you know, a few verses or a short piece of the chapter and you can't tell how much time passes. Um, sometimes it'll give just one verse and it will really be seven years or Joshua takes the promised land, but it really was 40 years that he was slowly taking the promised land. As we have seen tanks roll into Ukraine, you know, you, you stay up all night the first night, but then you realize this thing might be long and drawn out. 
And even with tanks and modern warfare, it takes many days to get somewhere. Well, you can imagine if you're on foot and you've got a small crew and you're trying to get the supplies and provisions you need in this time period. So probably this is a longer period of time. But in any case, the tribal warfare in the area continues. Midian continues to drive out the Midian, or Gideon continues to drive out the Midianites. And what we should notice and what most scholars notice in this chapter is that the table kind of turns, the language changes. The focus was on God in chapter 7, but in chapter 8, we start getting the sense that the focus is on Gideon. It's about who he is and what he's able to do. And so there's these little internal skirmishes about power and who gets the glory for different parts of the land that are taken. You see that happen. And it culminates here in verse 21, which is right before our verse, where Gideon comes back through, he's finally driven out all the Midianites, and there's two people that have kind of pissed him off because they didn't do what he wanted them to do. And here's where we see, I think the scripture's pointing us to kind of having a different lens for how we see Gideon here. And it's, these two characters are Zeba and Zalmunna, and uh, they had fled Gideon and he captured them, and they had killed some of Gideon's relatives, and Gideon has this judgment moment, this threshing floor moment, where he gets to decide what kind of person is he going to be? Is he going to invite God into this decision, or is he going to take matters into his own hands? And the story goes like this, that Gideon decides he's going to kill them, so he tells his young son to take up a sword and to kill them. And his son's probably standing there trembling like some of these young Russian soldiers that I see that don't know what they're doing or where they are, and he doesn't do it. And the men taunt Gideon, and they say to Gideon, you aren't a man, you won't take up the sword and kill us. And Gideon grabs one of these daggers or whatever and cuts their throats and they fall to the ground. And Gideon has done something here that the Lord had not told him to do. He's taken vengeance into his own hands. And I think the text is wanting us to see that. And so that brings us to today's um, passage, starting in verse 22. So you can look with me there at the scriptures. We're going to be looking at three different things. Uh, Gideon's confession. Then what are Gideon's actions? Does his confession match with his actions? And then we're just going to look at Gideon's entire life, his legacy, his judgeship. How should we see Gideon? So one of my professors at seminary said, context is king. So we want to be careful when we read the scriptures to just look at the context. So in chapter 22, you can imagine, again, we don't know the time period here, how many years it took for Gideon to drive out the Midianites. But slowly, all the people that are warring in the land start coming back, reporting that they've finally defeated these tribes that God had told them to drive out. And they come and they start gathering, imagine their troops behind them. They're kind of the lords of their tribes, the main person of their tribe. And they gather around Gideon and they say, you should be our king. And there's all this politics happening about him being the king or not. And finally, they all come and it culminates in some sort of meeting and Gideon's there. And they say, you should be our king. You should reign over us, your sons and your son's sons, your grandchildren. And so this is a moment of judgeship for Gideon. Who is Gideon going to be for? And we see here there's a confession that happens. Gideon says the right thing. He has, he's a good Presbyterian. He knows his orthodoxy. He knows his confession. He says, 
I will not be your king. My sons will not be your king. Yahweh God will be your king. That's what he says. And interestingly, it's the right answer. It's the good Sunday school answer. And that's his orthodoxy. But then I think the text is asking us to look a little bit deeper beyond that. So as I said, the, the, the judges, the purpose of them was to drive them back to re be reminded of this amazing covenant story of God's strong outstretched arm that rescued them from Egypt, right? That's the covenant story that they should be drawn into. So Gideon in this text, of course, builds an altar to God, calls the people to humbly repent and says, you saved us, God. We, our eyes are on you and we want to humbly serve you and follow you. Is that what happens? If you look at the text, it's not what happens. Gideon does not do that. One thing that we should notice first is that they said, you saved us. Now Gideon confesses that God is king, but he doesn't say that Yahweh saved them. He lets that stand. Gideon lets it stand that he was the savior in this story. The next thing he does, if you're looking at the text, is he said, well, I can't be your king, but why don't you guys bring me all the war booty, everything you've won over the years as you drove out the Midianites. Lay it on these, these beautiful cloaks or these beautiful embroidered kingly things right in front of me at my feet. Bring the gold earrings. Bring all the precious stones that you got off the war camels and the kings that you defeated and lay them at my feet. That's what he says. And so they... They say, we gladly will do that. We'll gladly do that. And if you know ancient Near Eastern culture, this is what you do when different tribes, the leaders of those tribes, come and bring homage to the king. And it's also something that says, we align with you. We covenant with you that if there's future wars, we will be by your side. And here is our token that we bring to pledge our allegiance to you. So Gideon's judgeship. We're thinking about his judgeship. This is a judgeship moment. Does Gideon point the people back to the covenant they have with the living God? Or does he point them to a new covenant with him? Then we have this interesting part where he makes an ephod. I had to go back and be reminded of what an ephod is. Some of you may know um, your Bible better than I do. And it's a very interesting thing. The ephod, it was something to be worn. The people of Israel at this time were to worship in the tabernacle in Shiloh. So that's not near where Gideon lives and where his family lives. They were to worship in Shiloh. And the priests had the opportunity to wear in important times this ephod. And an ephod was this interesting thing. It was an embroidered piece of cloth with tassels that hung down. And there was two stones up at the top that, that were two precious stones from the area. And then there was, interestingly, 12 stones, four rows, three going down. And on each stone, there was one of the tribes of Israel. And the idea was this, that in appointed times or certain times, if the people needed to call out to God, they could come and they could gather around the Lord in their tribes and they could discern, imagine tribes, the politics that would go on. Someone's angry at one tribe. The tribe of Dan is angry at the tribe of Benjamin. How do we resolve this? Well, we come to the king and we let him judge us. So the 12 tribes are represented. Gideon knows this. And so he builds an ephod. There's only to be one ephod. And that ephod already stands in Shiloh. But Gideon decides to build a second ephod. 
It's very interesting. And he sets this ephod up in his own city, in Orpha. So he knew that worship was to be in Shiloh, but Gideon sets up this special tool of judgeship in his own city. So how does the text want us to see that? That's the question. Gideon knew that this New Testament passage, that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And he wanted to immortalize his legacy. And it says this, this is how the text wants us to see this. It says, the people hoard after the ephod. They hoard after it. And if you're reading Judges carefully, you know that when they're whoring after something, it's like them whoring after the culture around them. Them whoring after the Baals or the Baals that are around them. It's the same word that's used. And it also says this, this thing became a snare, a trap, fool's gold to Gideon and his family. So if you're still trying to maybe in your heart wrestle with this, is Gideon, are we to see Gideon through the eyes of this champion hero? Or does the Bible give us a different story here in the middle and end of his life? Because he confessed the right thing, right? His orthodoxy was right. God is king. But he ends up with many wives, 70 sons, concubines, just like the kings around him. And I think this one just puts an end to the question. He names one of his sons Abimelech. And Abimelech means my father is king. Let that sink in for a minute. I want to spend here the rest of the time with this question and I want to bring this to bear in our lives. What should we think of this? How did Gideon, who began as a humble, dependent man in a threshing floor doing something useful and used as a mighty man of God in light of that, end up undermining his entire life's purpose and calling at the end of his life? That's a good question. It's a good question for all of us to think on as men. So to do this, I just want to look a little bit. I think the text, when you're looking at the big picture of Gideon's judgeship, it, it draws our attention to certain things. It kind of compares and contrasts two different aspects or two different moments of Gideon's life. You kind of have this beginning moment where Gideon isn't recognized by anyone and he's threshing and hiding in a wine press, but he's threshing wheat, but the Lord sees him and the Lord sees his heart. And then you have this end where Gideon's going after the fame and the glory and his legacy. They both begin in the city of Orpha, right? So both begin and end in the city of Orpha. There's actually two threshing floor moments, two judgment moments. The first, God judges Gideon's heart and Gideon proclaims, I'm the least in my father's tribe. How can you use me? And the second is Gideon sets himself, himself up to judge the nations. And then at the end, there's two altars, right? The first altar is this altar that his family is worshiping around, the Baal that his family worships. Gideon tears down that first altar. And the second altar at the end of his life, and here in chapter 8, 
is Gideon builds an altar so that people will come and worship him. The threshing floor man, this is the beginning of Gideon's life, is in the mess, in a mess. If you've ever threshed anything, threshed wheat, he's doing ordinary things. And God meets him and he meets with God in his presence. And if you look at Gideon in chapter 6, he confesses the story. He says, God, where are you? The God who rescued us. There's no promise of glory. There's only a scared man clinging to a God who says, I will be with you. The legacy man takes power and life from others in the presence of men, not just with God in his presence, in the presence of men, exalts himself. The legacy man builds a corrupt, syncretistic altar and leads the people into apostasy. Syncretism. Many of you probably know what that means, but syncretism is when you mix different religions. You mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Gideon knew what he was doing. He knew the stories of God. He knew what the ephod would, and he knew that the people would think, oh yeah, this is our token. This is something we recognize. And so he used that to lead the people astray. And the legacy man set himself up as judge to immortalize his fame. So let me just, to conclude here, bring us back to the threshing floor because I think this is where we need to be as people that are rooted in the gospel and rooted in grace. What does it look like to be somebody that begins our life on the threshing floor and ends our life on the threshing floor? The threshing floor, what is the threshing floor? David was teaching a few weeks ago, did a great job talking about this, but the threshing floor is a place of judgment. It's a place where purification happens. The useless part of something is done away with, which allows for what? Allows for transformation. Something that was previously useless becomes of service. It's still ordinary, it's finite, it's bound, but useful. And this can lead to, to transformation can lead to glorification, right? So this thing that's been transformed can change from something ordinary to become something extraordinary in God's hands. And really, in light of the Christian story, our view is that this thing can be eternal and it can be ever maturing into the presence of God. And the story of the threshing floor here that we have actually develops in the Israelite story into the altar, the worship. The people of God could come before God in his presence at the altar, that was the temple, and they could offer sacrifices and be transformed at this altar. They could be purified, forgiven, renewed, and then sent back out to worship in their daily lives and do the, king, the king's bidding. So it still seems a little bit like an Old Testament idea, but I wanted to just draw our attention to we actually do the same thing today in a worship service. And this connects to this idea of Christ being our king. But we are called by God when we come into worship. He calls us to gather. We confess our sins, right? We're forgiven. And then we draw near to the Holy of Holies. How do we do that? Well, we become a sacrifice. Mark preaches from the, the pulpit. 
right? That's the word of God. It's the double-edged sword that cuts us up. It slices and dices our hearts so that we can become an offering. And we come to the offering thinking we're going to be sacrificed. But guess what? There's already a sacrifice in our place. And we memorialize Christ in the Lord's Supper. And that, that all these things working together can transform us to be sent out as living, not dead sacrifices, as living sacrifices for the living God who is our King. Something useless becomes something useful, useful on the altar of grace. That's the threshing floor idea. What about the legacy idea? The legacy idea offers fool's gold. This, we all need to hear this. I know my heart does too. It's a sure investment that is actually an overpriced stock. It's a once-in-the-lifetime oil deal that actually is dry to the bone. It's cryptocurrency that's going to rocket, 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 if you know Elon Musk. It drinks from the cup of fame, fortune, and notoriety, but without the presence of God. Even if you correctly proclaim that Jesus is king. These things are good gifts given by God, but without proper orientation, they are going to undermine your core identity. They're going to become a snare to you and your family. And it's not an if, but a matter of when. So I just wanted to invite the Lord into our presence here this morning in terms of what does this passage say to us? And what does it say to my heart? And what does it say to your heart? And what, what might be some implications? And I'm going to conclude with this. And I... I was at something where I got to hear a Michael Card song that I heard uh, a while ago, but it really spoke to my heart, and I'm going to end with, with that song. But I just wanted to compare and contrast in my view, and again, Christ's Spirit is in me, and Christ's Spirit is in you, so he can speak to us this day from his throne of grace. A legacy man seeks fame for himself. A threshing floor man gives God the fame. A legacy man seeks fortune and flaunts his wealth. A threshing floor man stewards, is charitable, and is content in all circumstances. A legacy man proclaims Jesus as king but exalts himself. A threshing floor man drinks deeply from the altar of grace and gives himself away. A legacy man listens to the crowds and follows the culture. A threshing floor man wisely discerns the times and calls out false gospels. A legacy man is a I did it my way man. If you know that song. A threshing floor man intentionally seeks counsel and participates in Christian community. A legacy man is loud and is boastful a threshing floor man says, I am the least of these. Think of Paul, the end of his life, who's this really a super apostle. A legacy man achieves at the expense of others. A threshing floor man expends himself. 
A legacy man is nearsighted and lives like a king in this life. A threshing floor man looks to be exalted, as 1 Peter says, in due season. A legacy man says Jesus is king, but his lifestyle and his choices do not. A threshing floor man is definitely not perfect, but he begs the Lord to spare him and his family from the idols and the culture. A legacy man works at the expense, works too much at the expense of his soul and his family. A threshing floor man lets God in on the secret that he struggles with this and wrestles with that temptation. A legacy man is nearly spiritually absent in the home. His wife struggles with depression or alcoholism or chops too much. But the threshing floor man wrestles and pleads with God at the altar of grace. A legacy man doesn't know when to retire and doesn't invite God into that question. But a threshing floor man knows when to hang it up and turn his heart towards seeing godliness instilled in his children and his children's children. Threshing floors and altars are messy places for messy people to honestly draw near to a gracious God because his grace is sufficient. So I'm just going to close here. This was a Michael Card song. Um, and it's called God's Fool, and I challenge you to listen to it today. It's a good song. It goes like this. I wish I could sing it, but I can't sing. (laughs) When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool, and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. That song's called God's Fool. You can listen to it today. So let's close in prayer. Father, we do draw near to you. We thank you that we can come to your altar of grace, Father, and that you are sufficient for us as men. Father, I pray that you would humble our hearts, that your word would challenge us, Lord, and that we would be transformed so that, Lord, we could serve you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and all of our strength. We look to you in faith. We pray for your favor and your mercy today. Father, we lift up this situation in the Ukraine. We pray for all of those dear brothers and sisters in Christ there. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful. Father, that you would answer their prayers. You would hear them, Father, and we pray that even in the midst of the sorrow and the pain, Father, that you would plant your church, Father God. And we pray that you would be with these people even today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.